Politics, culture, school, news. Podcasting from Melbourne and Wangaratta, this is the Barling and Mitchell Show. I'm Sean Mitchell. And I'm Noah Barling. Welcome. Call of Duty Cold War is unveiled in a series of controversial trailers. The Democrats and Republicans have their nominating conventions and Australia takes a stand on foreign relations. This week on the show, we'll be reacting to the new COD trailers. Are they a signal of conservatism in the culture or simply a leftist hack? The Democrat National Convention and Republican National Convention and the two fundamentally different visions for America and the world. And finally, we'll be taking a look at the Morrison government's foreign relations bill and what this will mean for the nation. This is The Barling and Mitchell Show. understand what's going on around you. You are in a state of war and you have precious little time to save yourself. It's a slow process which we call active measures. The first stage being demoralization. It takes from 15 to 20 years to demoralize a nation. The next stage is destabilization. What matters is essentials. Economy, foreign relations, defense systems. The next stage is crisis with a violent change of power, structure and economy, period of normalization. This is what will happen in the United States if you allow all these schmucks to put a big brother government in Washington DC who will promise lots of things, never mind whether the promises are fulfilled or not. The time bomb is ticking, but every second, the disaster is coming closer and closer. The danger is real. All right. Uh, so we've just watched the uh, Call of Duty Cold War uh, trailer there. And I thought it was, it was pretty interesting to see that. Um, it's, it's not something we've seen in the culture uh, of recent years, I suppose. Um, Got a lot to say in it. No, what, what do you reckon? I, I found it um, fascinating to to see such a um, a vision uh, or a take of the Cold War. Normally, um, normally we see a lot of nuclear um, staff arms race now, which is what we're seeing there. But we're seeing the more nuanced aspects of it, which we don't get to see or hear about much, which is quite fascinating, I think. And uh, I certainly. Um, wonder what prompted the um, makers of the game to pursue that kind of storyline, especially in this kind of moment. Absolutely. I thought it was really interesting, particularly, of course, you've got President Reagan, uh, who's still a, still a highly controversial figure in, in some circles and, and groups. Um, 
there and obviously uh, known for contributing significantly to the end of the Cold War <clears throat> and being very, uh, very anti-communist and very pro-freedom uh, and liberty in terms of uh, what guided his foreign policy. But I thought particularly interesting was that they used the Yuri Bezmenov uh, interview. He was, he was a, obviously a, a KGB defector to the United States. And in that interview, he goes through four stages, um, which I just thought, you know, as he said, I thought, well, hang on, you know, it's, it's like I'm seeing this now in the United States and in the, in the Western world. Um, he goes through uh, demoralization, destabilization, crisis, and normalization. Um, I just thought that is, that is really interesting. I, I don't know what you reckon, though. You reckon you see that as well? Oh, definitely. You see, um, you know, the destabilization of, of uh, what what is typical in America, what is normal, what they've believed for for decades, and and what what they would consider, you know, the normal way of life. Um, uh, even then, um, we just see, uh, I suppose you could argue in certain movements um, around the world, even a lot of protesting at the moment, a lot of, you know, that destabilising anarchists not happy with the government um, mood, which well, is obviously the first phase of that. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. I know in the, and, you know, I don't want to offend <laughs> any of my, my acquaintances at school and such too much, but certainly in the Black Lives Matter movement, I know some of the leaders and founders of it in the United States have said quite openly that they're trained and avowed Marxists. And obviously I know there's still um, quite a kind of um, ambiguous approach to Marxism in the classroom these days. And I have a couple of teachers who are quite happy to open openly discuss it as if it's a it's it's a valid idea um mm. in terms of oh yeah it should you know marxism and by extension socialism and communism should be implemented and such which um obviously i'm quite against and and you are as well Noah. Mm. but it's interesting to see that 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 relating to the demoralization obviously standards kind of slipping in society and then destabilization uh which Yuri Bezmenov kind of refers to with the economy, foreign policy and defence systems uh, crisis, which he, he kind of describes as uh, violent change of power and, and rights and protests. Um, and then, of course, the normalisation of that. And I think we have kind of seen a normalisation of that in 2020. It's just continued throughout the whole year. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's certainly interesting um, for it to be released um, at this moment, I think. Um, and, and the way that they go about it is a very interesting portrayal, I felt, of um, what goes on behind the scenes to, you know, lead to destabilisation, lead to, you know, the how they plan on, you know, sort of taking over, which, of course, this is the Soviet Union, but it's equally applicable to, to any movement. I mean, you look at um, George Orwell's 1984 and, you know, destabilisation, the normalization, you know, the normalization of, <clears throat> well, this is reality, this is existence, this is what we can and can't do, sort of thing. And then, you know, that kind of acceptance of that, which leads to a society which is incredibly hard to break away from. Absolutely. And it's that, 
that um, <clears throat> quote, I uh, forget who it's from, but uh, obviously every dystopia, and there's been a lot of them, Nazi Germany, Soviet Russia, communist China today obviously is. Um, well, it's, it's been created on the basis of creating a utopia, a utopian yeah. society. I know we're studying in revs at the moment, we're studying the Great Leap Forward in China, which is where essentially Mao's second five-year plan where he tried to you know, really boost the Chinese economy um, mm. by collectivizing everything, making everyone work in agricultural communes, people's communes rather, absolute disaster led to you know widely accepted the number is 33 million deaths but some historians estimate all the way up to 80 million deaths mm. i mean it, it is just absolutely bloody and coming hand in hand with trying to achieve that utopia is the destruction of free speech there was a anti-rightist movement before that as well mm. and it's just interesting as you've said that that this trailer's come out this year and I think it'll be it'll be really interesting to see you know, how does it influence um, the minds of what's kind of going to be predominantly young men playing it, mm. young teenage boys, I guess. Mm. Um, will it have an influence on political outlooks and, and such like that, or will it not? Um, I don't know. It'd, be, it'd certainly be interesting to um, see how, yeah, whether whether it affects you know what they think. It's certainly um, be good to give people a historical perspective. Um, that I, from what I gather, seems to be relatively uh, non, you know, relatively partisan, bipartisan, and um, and sort of you know, almost like it was back then. Even you know, our our common enemy is you know, Soviet Russia, yeah, um, as opposed to is your neighbour. Um, yeah, which, which is unfortunately what we're seeing more today. Even um, now, you and I would both agree that um, communist China um, at the moment is is certainly probably our common enemy, and their authoritarian regime, forced labour, re-education camps, stuff like that, um, certainly is is a common common enemy. But you know, in this time, we see we don't see that um, un unity against them. We see um, separation between, you know, brothers and sisters in the West um, over, yeah. over something that in reality isn't going to to have that much of an impact because we enjoy those freedoms. Whereas if we don't stand up, if we don't unite and say to, you know, China and Chairman Xi, you know, we're not going to have this, then we don't, you know, we're not going to have any freedoms. Certainly. And I think as well, it's interesting that, you know, in, I know we have kind of, this is a emerged youth culture, especially among the, the teenage girls of our generation of kind of reposting um, social justice issues and, and petitions and such all the time on, on, um, on their stories and such on Instagram, which look, I'm not sliding them for, I think it's created some good change, of course. Not that what the information they share is always correct, but it's interesting because it seems the focus on injustice in the modern world is always, oh, you know, um, th this person has been unjustly shot and wrongly shot by a police officer in the mm -hmm. US or, you know, this has happened. It's never, oh, you know, in China, there's 2 million 
Uyghur Muslims who have been mm. sent into what are essentially um, concentration, concentration camps. Yeah, there's, there's just no one talks about it. Well, I mean, there are some talk about. It, but there's not. There's not a great con- uh, conversation on it, and there really should be. And mm. no one relates it back to the ideology. Certainly, I think it's um, an, an issue that we have in the modern day. That ignorance, I think, of or not willing to stand up for for traditional Western values. I think that's something that society is lacking. And, um, you know, let's imagine the horror people today would have of, you know, what, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan sending the the people on the mission, even if it wasn't, you know, even if it wasn't the most legal or transparent thing, those kind of things sometimes have to happen. And imagine the outrage today. How could you do that? You know, get the United Nations involved and, the, the yeah. International Court of Justice in The Hague and all that kind of international bureaucracy, which is fundamentally what China now controls and that, you know, Absolutely. the World Health Organization and um, the UN and those kind of bodies that, you know, seemingly for some bizarre reason looked up to as perfect and as the ideal, as the, the goal, but in reality are, more corrupt than national governments and and you know not what they promised to be absolutely and i think there's a case for the un as well i mean Mm. i look at it from the perspective of when the united nations was set up and i think obviously you know you and i've looked at this in global politics this year it's it's fundamentally flawed organization because um the veto power on Mm. the unsc now Mm. I, I'm of the unpopular opinion that there still should be a veto power. <laughs> it just, it should be in the hands of the United States and the United Kingdom and the mm. democracies of the world or alter- alternatively to the UN, there's just a league of democracies. Mm. Cause how, how are you supposed to work as a, you know, a, in a cosmopolitan sense toward, towards a better world. If you have governments <laughs> like, the Russian Federation and the the Chinese Communist Party, mm. who are obviously not doing that within their own nation, and who are fueled by more well, different different motivations and desires, and have a different base. You know, I mean, mm. in in China, it's the state comes before the people, um, whereas in the United States, well, it's supposed to be uh, principles, ideals, you know, freedom, mm. liberty, faith, that kind of thing mm. comes before before all the people, you know, we, the people, that kind of stuff. Mm. Well, certainly um, interesting. You talk about the United States, obviously it's been a big week, um, big, yeah. big few weeks over there um, politically. Someone once said that America is great because it is good. And that if America ceases to be good, it will no longer be great. It is the goodness in Americans that informs the greatness of America. The freedom to do what is right and good for yourself, your family. To reap the blessings of hard work. To accomplish dreams. To live securely. To help others. Not by force of government, but by goodness of heart, where rights are not granted by government or claimed by identities, but are unalienable as members of the human race. 
and that that really ties in well to our uh, next topic um mm, the republican <laughs> national convention and the democratic national convention this week that we had and um i know we were talking about it before the show Noah, and i've i've been able to watch the first three nights and i'll be honest i really enjoyed it i really did uh, there was some there's some kind of great now it would took a long time because each night's <laughs> three or four hours but there's something in it. There's some kind of hope. There's some kind of happiness. There's some kind of higher loyalty in it, which I thought was, you know, really great to see. And mm. in the RNC kind of, I guess the theme was, you know, renewal an American renewal, the American dream and doing good. Um, whereas obviously I didn't watch the DNC, so I can't judge it too unfairly, but I heard that it was much more, you know, orange man, bad, so to speak. <laughs> I, I certainly heard similar um, from uh, from you know that the Republican convention was more wasn't necessarily hope filled per se, but it was it was more bright than the Democratic convention, which is more this is it's it's doom and gloom now, whereas um, the the Republicans seem to be more um, America's great and we're going to keep making it greater sort of thing. Um, Absolutely. Which interesting contrast um, I found there. Um, it was interesting because yeah. uh, I, I was uh, watching Mike Pence, big fan of Mike Pence. Um, his his um, vice presidential acceptance um, speech on the day three of the Republican one, and he was saying um, something about Joe Biden and, and what he sees America. And we'll just play that um, quote now for the viewers. Instead... Democrats spent four days attacking America. Joe Biden said that we were living through a season of darkness. But as President Trump said, where Joe Biden sees American darkness, we see American greatness. Yeah, yeah, well, certainly. Um, yeah, it, it is about that. And I think the thing at the RNC was there was, there's something of the Republicans and obviously you know, it's politics. They're going to kind of yell at each other. They're going to be unfair to each other. I get that, but there's something fundamentally American. There's, there's two I saw, you know, the DNC and the RNC, there's just two different visions for America. And the one in the, the RNC was, you know, we are, we are one nation under God, which obviously mm. is very divisive. Um, statement but you know we fundamentally have a shared vision a shared unity a shared common purpose um to do good uh in our own country and in the world um and obviously you know they draw from heritage they draw from the american heritage mm. but it i think it was the most inclusive rnc i've ever seen to use you know, the, the leftist kind of word inclusive you know mm. you had senator tim scott who i'm a big fan of he was there you had um Nikki Haley as well, mm. really fantastic uh, ambassador to mm. the United Nations. Mm. Um, and you had, I mean, I can't even name all of them. Um, but there was something about it, which, you know, I thought, you know, if, if there was more uh, bipartisanship in the United States, wow, you know, look what President Trump and look what the Republicans could do. And even the Democrats, mm. not all of them. I mean, some of them, I think, you know, you look at a AOC and Bernie Sanders, I mean, that's that's a fundamentally anti-american vision um and i kind of i know that's controversial to say but i think it is socialism it's it's not it's not american 
Mm, well, that, that's interesting you say that because uh, I know a big part of the platform for the Republicans, well, actually, not that they have a platform, actually their platform uh, that they voted on and agreed was pretty much just a page saying we support Donald Trump, which was certainly interesting t- to give him such, um, you know, to sort of do that with a party platform. But the the, the convention certainly I noticed that um, the Republicans talked a lot about um, uh, Joe Biden, he said, um, democracy is on the ballot at this election. I think Mike Pence was saying, mm. um, it's not just, you know, it's not democracy, but it's whether, you know, the options are, do we want to keep America, America, or do we want to destroy America, which was certainly, um, an interesting perspective and, um, con- con- contrary, I guess, to, well, I suppose in a way, democracy is on the ballot in that regard, if it's keep America or get rid of it sort of thing. Certainly, certainly. And, you know, it's just, it's just such a tragedy what's been happening in the United States. You know, in 2016, I don't know about you, you'll have to, you'll have to say what your experience has been. But in 2016, I did not support Donald Trump. I, I really, I was very, uh, I was upset when he won. Uh, I remember being in, we were in class, we're in maths. No one was doing maths. Everyone was watching the election. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. You, you know, seriously, oh no, it's going to be a nuclear war now. You know, <laughs> it's going to be, the world is just going to go under. It's going to be terrible, I thought. Um, and I thought that for a while, to be honest. But look at him now, right? He's, <laughs> he is a questionable character, of course. He's not, he's not uh, a moral kind of role model, a moral example like Reagan or anything like that. But, Look what he's done, you know, the first step act, the, the renegotiation of, um, of NAFTA to the uh, USMCA agreement. And of course, the, the trade war with China. And these are, these are obviously contentious issues, which the left and some on the right will, will argue, well, no, that was a bad thing. But I think overall, what's he done? He's always done things in the American national interest, mm. which not always, but usually by extension is in the not the national interest, but the interest of um, liberty and freedom for the whole world. Um, mm. You know, Qasem, Soleimani, uh, Abu al-Baghdadi mm. got rid of them. ISIS is pretty much gone now. Mm. He's just trying to get out of all the wars. I mean, I get that he's questionable. I get that he's not good. I get that some of his decisions can be attacked. But I mean, look at him on his merits. He's done, mm. he's done some pretty good things. And equally, everyone, every politician um, has done good and done bad. Joe Biden, he's been, what, in the Washington for, what, 47 years, you know? And over that time, yeah. he's done some pretty terrible things and equally he's done some, some good things, I guess. So it really, you know, but I think if we look at it on the basis of it, Donald Trump's promised, perhaps not the most popular stuff, but he's done what he's promised. And, um you know, people want a politician who keeps their word and Donald Trump does that. Um, and it's interesting because um, obviously Donald Trump isn't a politician per se, he's a businessman first and foremost, yeah. as, as we've seen with the economy and I think unemployment rates, um, I think under Trump, black, um, Hispanic and female unemployment rates being the lowest they've ever been in history. Um, and so we see, you know, he knows how to get that the economy going and, and 
you know, what's best for the economy, which is what the average middle class blue collar worker wants. They want jobs, they want lower taxes, they want, you know, their money to spend and to the American dream, really, which is what, you know, they were saying, the Republicans, you know, we're the party of the, the American dream of, you know, yeah. the Star Spangled Banner and all the other patriotic stuff that they like to say, which was, um, uh, I noticed on the first uh, night of the convention, they, they made um, note of one of the um, Democratic um, Pledge of Allegiances on one of the nights um, foregoing the words under God, which they made quite a big deal about. Yes, yes. Well, that was interesting because obviously that was added in there uh, mm. under God by President uh, Eisenhower in the 1950s. So it hadn't been there before. It was kind of inspired by, uh, I believe, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, where he says, I've got it with me, but there's no way I'm going to find it in time, um, <laughs> where he does mention, he does say um, something uh, by the notion of, you know, one nation under God, mm. um, essentially. And obviously, America, America, you know, I look at Australia, look at America, America has a lot more religion and mm. uh, openly religious, much more uh, religious population. Um, Certainly, you know, there's no way you would have the, that kind of stuff happening in Australia. I just, I just can't see it happening mm. um, or any other country, really. Um, obviously, there's religious governments. But there's a difference between a religious government like Iran and mm. a government which has uh, a religion as an influence, like mm. in the yeah. United States, mm. um, which can be a good thing, can be a bad thing as well. Um, Obviously, kind of the main thing I want to talk about here with the RNC is the two fundamentally different visions uh, mm. for America. So, um, I think I think you've got, as as we've said, you know, Joe Biden. Uh, I know some people have suggested he's he's a Trojan horse for socialism mm. um, and for the radical left in his party. Which so part of me feels like, oh, look at that. That's just scaremongering but then i look at the democrat party and you know look look where it's gone it is this is not the party of uh jfk anymore you know, this is not the party of harry truman this is not even necessarily the party of bill clinton in terms of its policies i mean mm. you have that is the aoc's mm. green new deal which mm. is like i don't know how many trillions of dollars it is but it's just ridiculous it is really ridiculous Mm. It was interesting, actually, the, um, <clears throat> just to um, contrast the two conventions, was that the, um, the Republican convention was very much Donald, the, the, it was, you know, the first family and a few others, you know, you had the Trumps who were very big speakers, mm. you had um, Mike and Karen Pence, obviously, as the vice president, Nikki Haley, um, uh, you had... Um, Kellyanne Conway, I believe she spoke. Yes. Um, Dan Crenshaw, he's he's pretty influenced. Mike Pompeo, actually, though that's pretty controversial. <laughs> I think yes, into that at the moment. So whether that'll help or hinder, yeah. um, you know. But you you look at the the speaker notes and you see most of it's just Trump, 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 and more Trump, um, yeah. with maybe a few other people i mean you don't see george w bush there you don't see no, um, you don't well not that it'd probably help but you know your rick santoriums and you know um 
Dick Cheney's um, stuff, you know, the, the big guns of the party or former representatives, you don't really no. um, see them there, which is certainly interesting. It's something I think that the Democrats obviously had where they had, I think, Bill Clinton, um, President Obama. Um, uh, did they have Jimmy Carter as well, I think? Did they? I, think, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised have. if they did. Um, Bernie Sanders, he's, he's a bit of a superstar for the socialist movement. Um, Elizabeth Warren, AOC, um, John Kasich, Andrew Cuomo. You know, they had a lot of uh, Pete Buttigieg, you know, Michael Bloomberg. They had a lot of, you know, big name Democrats there supporting Joe Biden, which I think might be, um, might negatively affect Trump in that regard that, you know, yeah. That, that big, you know, he, Trump had the Trumps, whereas it would seem the Democrats, you know, Joe Biden had a, a larger spread of support amongst party politicians per se. Oh, for sure. Well, I mean, as you said, John Kasich, um, I, I didn't know that he was at the, the DNC, but I think he's a Republican. <laughs> yeah, I think and... he actually ran for president last last. Um, 2016 he ran for nomination i think yeah well he's the he was the governor of ohio um until 2019 mm. but yeah no it's, it's very interesting because the republican party just as well as the democratic party has changed or is changing mm. the republican party seriously being rocked by trump i mean i don't know if you've got any of the lincoln project ads uh which is kind of that group of republicans that are against uh donald trump um but there's a lot of them. And I think I saw today, you know, George W. Bush said, oh, he doesn't, you know, he's not voting for Trump or he's, he doesn't know what he's going to do or that kind of thing. Because the Republican establishment, um, I think Victor Davis Hanson, who has a great book called The Case for Trump, he points this out. The Republican establishment, the Mitt Romneys, the George W. Bushes, who are, you know, good. They are good. They're very different to Donald Trump. They have a very different vision to Donald Trump. They have a very different way of doing things because they are the establishment. They are the political establishment. Whereas Donald Trump is not the political establishment. He is, he is there to change the, you know, was it drain the swamp? Is that, yeah, that's what he says. Yeah, I think Matt Gates as well has been a proponent of the draining of the swamp. Um, it's a very interesting um, I think, situation. I think yeah, fundamentally, Donald Trump is people might not agree with this or people certainly he used to be a democrat and um yeah i think fundamentally he's been one of the most successful businessmen you know for quite some time you know in the traditional sense not you know your bill gates jeff bezos um mark zuckerberg you know start up a tech company make billions but you know your traditional real estate mogul um property developer donald trump's been one of the most successful um people i actually i saw this thing on his website um trump.com it was about um they were talking about him obviously as the company and they were saying i think um like donald trump is the archetype of the or the successful he's you know the american dream per se which which i found a bit interesting yeah, that's that's actually Actually, you know, Obama, Obama said that, I think, mm. before Trump ran for president. I think it's an Obama quote. Yeah, <laughs> which is kind of comical. Um, 
But no, it's, it's extremely interesting. It's extremely interesting. And the fact that he's running against, as you've said before today in this podcast, Joe Biden, who is you know, really, I mean, what an embodiment of the establishment. Um, you know, like you said, Washington insider, there for 47 years, um, and has a very controversial history. I mean, I, think I saw something today, um, Trump being the most pro-gay president, um, which, you know, might actually upset some of his base. But I mean, he is in terms of, you know, consistency and his policies, obviously. Yeah, mm. the transgender ban and the military, which is a bit of a questionable uh, thing in that community. But mm. Joe Biden, you know, he's like, no, I'm not for, I'm not for. And still, even in 2012, 2015, some kind of recent time, still said the same thing, which I don't mean to hold against him. But I mean, it's very different from where I think the, Repub- the, the Democrat base is shifting to, which, and obviously he, he was against the desegregation of busing in the 1970s, which is, I mean, how do you defend that? You know, mm. how the heck do you defend that? That is really an indefensible mm. um, position. Who do you, well, I mean, uh, I've, I've, who do you think will win? You know, let's, let's do some predicting. Yeah, well, Obviously, the trouble with predicting is that you can be wrong. <laughs> um, look, I, I think I think Trump. I just I just think it will be. Uh, you know, uh, perhaps I'm being a bit nonsensical. I just have a gut feeling it's going to be Trump. Um, mm. Trump has the charisma. He has the uh, the vision, the the message of renewal, of hope, of the American dream, um, and of yes, making America great again. Whereas what, you know, what's the Biden-Harris vision? Well, it's a vision that America is fundamentally bad. It's a vision that, well, America, oh, you know, we, we really need to change. We essentially need, we need a, a different country, I think, is what they're saying. Or, or you know, what, what are they going to do? What's Biden-Harris going to do um, with that, you know, they haven't done in their 40 or 50 years of collective governance? You know mm. what I mean? Um, but I think, I just think Donald Trump will, I think it could even be a landslide for Trump. I hope that I don't look back on this podcast in, uh, December and go, Oh, what an idiot I was for <laughs> saying that. But, uh, we will see. I don't know. Mm. What do you think? I, I definitely would have to say come November 2nd or 3rd, I think it is. Um, I'm, I'm hesitant to call it. I've been, uh, ever since COVID hit, I've, I've been swinging back and forth. But after watching the conventions, I've got to, got to lean towards Trump um, in the fact that he'll possibly flip some of those north, northern um, industrial states like Michigan um, because yeah. of his, you know, business credentials, his, his work with the economy as, you know, the blue-collar worker, the middle-class voter will want jobs, um, especially after COVID. Um, and they want lower taxes, which is what Donald Trump's doing. So I think, I think, I'm not sure he'll win the popular vote, but I think he knows, uh, I think he knows what states he needs to win and what states are in play that he needs to, you know, win to get the electoral college. And I think he's going to win in the electoral college by possibly a landslide, but I'm not convinced he'll win the um, popular vote, especially if it's mail-out voting, than if it's mail-out voting on. Oh, yeah. That, that adds, you know, a whole other factor into play. Yeah, it's really... Pe- people hate, they really hate Donald Trump attacking mail-in voting. They hate it. But, I mean, 
possibly it's, it's a different scenario in Australia where, you know, we, we have an AEC, we have an independent um, electoral commission. Um, whereas in the US, they just, they just don't have that. And you've got that footage, I think it's from the California state election where it was all mail-in voting. He's had the, this footage of the male, uh, male men or male women just throwing Republican votes in the bin, just, <laughs> just throwing them in the trash. So obviously President Trump sees this and he's like, oh no. Then obviously I think it's the UPS um, union endorsed um, the Biden-Harris ticket. Mm. So, you know, how can you have that accountability? Uh, I hope it is there because I think, you know, honestly, if COVID's still as bad as it is, which I, I can't well, yeah. see it continuing, it's going to be a lot of that. And you've got the um, police unions, obviously a lot of them are endorsing Donald Trump. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of, by partisanship at the moment. Absolutely. Well, it's a very divided country in many respects, but I guess an idealist kind of uh, vision of it is, you know, if Trump wins, that will possibly pull the Democrats um, <laughs> back to the, back to a vision of America, back to a philosophically, um, you know, based, based on the American philosophy and the shared American vision, um, you know, more JFK Democrats mm. um, and that kind of such, which, which I mean, Biden's trying to be a bit, but he's trying to be both. Um, mm. So it just doesn't work. And obviously he's very old. <laughs> which, <laughs> both, what so, are they, like 78 and 72 or something. So. Yeah, that's, that's right. And well, I mean, it's interesting. Have you seen the kind of discussion about the presidential debate uh, and what's mm. going to happen with that? I'll love to see that. That's going to be great fun. Mm. Oh, well, the other thing I actually get interested in, because it's me and I like to look forward and make bold predictions, was actually the Republican candidate for 2024, because um, obviously we've oh. got some names being pushed out now. And I think so if, Don, if Donald Trump gets re-elected, then I think the two front runners will be Nikki Haley and Mike Pence. Yep. If he doesn't, not I'm not convinced Mike Pence will be able to run as a credible primary candidate um, on the basis that you know he's tied himself closely to Trump because that's the kind of vice president he's needed to be. Um, yeah, and I think oh, he's done lots of good things. He's he's covered up for Trump a lot and taken some of that flack. But um, I think if if Donald Trump wins, then Mike Pence or Nikki Haley which would be interesting because if Nikki Haley runs, that would be a bit of a coup for the Republicans as, as a, female, a, a female as well as a, an Indian heritage. Yeah, and she's fantastic. She mm. is really good. Um, I don't know. I haven't read her book yet. Uh, I think it's with all due respect, but I really want her. She, I mean, I listened to her speech at the RNC and it's mm. fantastic. I think as well, though, um, like there's lots of really good candidates on the... Uh, on the uh, Republican side. Um, I'm sure they're there on the, the Democrat side as well, but they just didn't come out <laughs> for well, the primaries got, this, you know, this Pete year. Buttigieg's and, um, Pete Buttigieg, he seems like a very promising candidate. Um, yeah, I just Not quite got the superstar power of a Warren, Biden or Sanders, but he's certainly... You know, yeah. Got a bit of credit amongst the, the party. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think as well in the Republican party, um, I know people, you know, Dan Crenshaw, as we've, we've mentioned prior tonight in the show, he's, 
people are just saying, oh, well, you know, I think I was listening to the Andrew Clayton show the other day and uh, it was a couple of months ago, actually. Uh, but they were talking to Dan Crenshaw on the welcome in, welcome in here as uh, uh, here's Dan Crenshaw, you know, future president of the United States currently biding his time as a congressman, you know? Um, but I think that's true. I think Dan Crenshaw has got a good chance. I, I really like Ted Cruz. Mm. I think uh, I have the same opinions as Ted, Ted Cruz. I don't know if you've ever listened to The Verdict, Ted Cruz and Michael Knowles. Great show. Fantastic. Really good to listen. He, he ran in 2016, didn't he? He did. Um, I, I may be incorrect, but I think at the end it was between him and Trump. I'm just having a look at now, actually, at the 2016 Republican primary. But I think, I think yeah. he got into like that last sort of three or four, maybe even. Two. Yeah. Hang on. Yeah. No, it looks like. Yeah. No, it was um, Ted Cruz. Well, Donald Trump took a landslide, but. Yeah. Ted Cruz certainly challenged. He obviously, him. he's he's an establishment uh, character, certainly. But I mean, he's very interesting as well. So, as you said, hang on. So we got Nikki Haley, we got Mike Pence, wonderful. He he will be able to ride the the Trump wave, I think. Um, even though it's going to be really interesting American politics after Trump because he's mm. such a character. He's got such a such a presence, such a which is very divisive yeah, as well. What's but, the you know, Republican Party going to do because they've sort of yeah. become the Trump Party? So when yeah. Trump goes, you know. Absolutely, it'll it'll change, um, but it will it will certainly be interesting to see, and hopefully, hopefully we'll we'll be able to go over there and um, mm. and and uh, witness that. Obviously, with um, just talking about the US then and the national interests of it before, um, Australia this week, the Prime Minister and uh, the Foreign Affairs Minister, uh, Scott Morrison and Maurice Payne, uh, obviously introduced a bill to Parliament that would give them some uh, pretty hefty foreign affair powers um, over especially trade agreements. Uh, we've got a clip of the Prime Minister speaking on that now, which we'll just play for you. But protecting and promoting Australia's national interest is the primary job of the federal government. It is what Australians elect federal governments to do. And this has always been our primary focus for our government. We need to ensure that Australia, not just at a federal level, but across all of our governments, speak with one voice, act in accordance with one plan, consistent with the national interest, as set out in Australia's foreign policy, as determined by the federal government. And the new Australian Foreign Relations Bill does just that. Drawing on the powers available in the Constitution, it enshrines those powers and provides very clear directions to do a number of important things. To establish the power to cancel and prohibit arrangements, memoranda, partnerships that are not consistent with Australia's foreign relations, that damage our foreign relations, 
It compels notification across all of those areas to ensure that we are aware when agreements, memoranda and other partnerships are being formed, to provide a transparency around all of those arrangements, which is important to assist the federal government pursue our foreign policy, which is about protecting Australia's national interests and promoting those national interests. Well, yeah, as we've just seen there, no, it's, it's quite an interesting thing. Uh, when we consider Australians, Australia's foreign policy um, over the past few years, we've, I think we've been slowly trending away from the Chinese sphere of influence. What do you think? Oh, so I think I think we've definitely seen that. Um, even with um, Prime Minister Abbott in I think twenty fifteen, when he threatened to shirt front Mr. Putin, I think we've seen since then a uh, perhaps um, a little more increase in Australian national interest in the global community, uh, and and what you know uh, is good for Australia, which certainly accelerated over the past six months with um, COVID and the tensions between the federal government and China. Absolutely. And obviously, notoriously, uh, and it was a different time, uh, 2015, uh, Mr. Abbott did uh, create the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement. Mm. Um, it's only been, I would say, uh, I don't know, what, what do you think, about 2017, 2018, where Australia started to uh, change its foreign policy stance towards China with the I believe it was Sam Destiari, uh, mm. which provoked that uh, in a certain incident, if you remember. Mm, yes. <laughs> that was uh, very unfortunate for him. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but I think it's interesting to see the government doing this, um, making this foreign relations bill. Obviously, we'll have to see if it passes. Uh, I think it will. I think mm. it will. Um, there shouldn't be too much... Um, obstruction in the Senate uh, for it. Uh, but obviously it's, to me, I look at it, it's pretty squarely aimed at the Victorian state government mm. and their um, ratification, if you will, of the Chinese government's uh, One Belt, One Road initiative in Victoria. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, th I, think, um, I think it was very clear when it was announced that it was... Oh, a very thinly veiled attack on the Andrews government in Victoria. Um, and I think of that press conference, just, just seeing the prime minister, you know, talking about the need for communication on these things, it would seem that the, the premier decided to sign it and not tell anyone until it went public, which would have uh, infuriated a few of the bureaucrats in DFAT, I dare say. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's quite an interesting uh, initiative, the Belt and Road Initiative that the Chinese Communist Party has going. You know, on face value, maybe it looks good for sure. We get a bunch of money loaned to us. We can build huge infrastructure. Wonderful. Of course, in reality, it is just a thinly veiled um, attempt by China to increase their uh, strategic outlook. I think they talk about a string of pearls theory mm. where, you know, if you can get, it, it's happened in many states, um, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Chinese government will give them the government of that state uh, a massive loan and they will build, oh, look, a massive, you know, 
aircraft carrier capable naval dock, right? Mm -hmm. And they can't pay it back. They just can't pay it back because it's so ridiculous. Mm. So of course, China says, oh, well, that's fine. Just give us the port. Yeah. Oh, wow. So obviously a huge threat to Australia's national interest and, um, and such. Interesting thing is I know the Chinese government um, already has leased out the port of Darwin and the port of Melbourne um, for oh, 99 Port of Melbourne as leases. well, really? Yeah, yeah, I think. For 99 year leases. So, um, Certainly. Yeah. Well, that's, that's something that, that actually, of course, I mean, I don't know about you, Noah, it's quite a quite no discomforting um, thought um, that those ports... Uh, may be owned by a government mm. which certainly doesn't seek to cooperate with Australia um, in many ways, neither does Australia, which is reciprocally mm. a bad relationship increasingly. But the problem with this bill, it's a great bill in many ways. And of course, as the Prime Minister said in his speech, it covers 130 known agreements, because not all agreements are known, mm. in 30 different states. Um, which will no doubtless, you know, doubtless include the UK and the US and mm. uh, states like France and such as well, as well as um, China. But of course, those states are democracies. China mm. is not. Um, but it doesn't cover that lease. It doesn't cover the lease of the Port of Darwin because mm. that was, again, I believe that it was that was the Abbott government. Um, if I'm correct. I think it was 2015, 2016 that the Port of Darwin was leased out um, to the Chinese. The other interesting thing actually I learnt was that the, um, the, uh, the West Country in Victoria, the, Mal the Mali and all that, I think 90% yeah. or something or an extraordinarily large majority of the um, land and dairy farms out there are owned by Chinese, you know, billionaires um mm. which is you know just another encroachment you know i think of the chinese um into our life and uh land and i think i think the government recently actually blocked a couple of chinese billionaires from buying some of the big massive cattle stations out out um out in the I believe, yeah i believe so it's certainly interesting to see the government starting to sort of hang on this is this is clearly buying up our land and starting to take control of our economy and our our you know our country. Yeah, and you know I understand how you know not necessarily those on the left but those those on the right as well who are kind of have the ideology of just pure unfettered capitalism might go well you know what's wrong with that you know it's just mm. a sale of land it's a good thing mm. um, you know we, we sell. Uh, huge amounts of Australian land to Americans as well as as the as Chinese, um, and I don't know. I don't. I don't necessarily personally. We we may be different here, Noah, but I don't have a huge problem with that. My problem is, is mainly the fact that you know, if if you're a billionaire in China, you're probably a billionaire because of the government. Mm. You're a billionaire because of the government, and you're under the directive of the Chinese Communist Party. And why are you doing it? You know, if you got an American who buys some land, well, what's he want to do? He probably wants to make some money, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you if you have a Chinese billionaire, I don't think so. I I see I see a strategic problem there. Because you know we we have a very good relationship with the United States. 
with China, different story increasingly. If China was a democracy, I wouldn't have such a huge problem here. But, but obviously, in Australia, I think Australians have to come to first. You know, mm. nationalism has a bad name, but mm. our national interest has to be paramount, as the Prime Minister said. Mm. I think um, the interesting thing about you know talking about America and China is that um, in the seventies, I think it was, you might have done this in Global. America decided in the United Nations sort of to switch the um, the Chinese government from Taiwan to mainland China, which because they saw the economic potential, which is obviously not turned out as they hoped leading to democracy, but it, it's still in the ravages of a communist regime. So one can only hope in the near future, uh, the regime Indeed. will topple. Indeed, we did briefly look at that. It's the Taiwan Relations Act 1979, which obviously in the UN, they recognise the People's Republic of China um, as, as the Chinese government um, and not didn't recognise Taiwan as an independent country, which was then obviously recognised as the Republic of China. But they did have in Congress the uh, Taiwan's Relation Act, which pretty much says to Taiwan, still active today, it's been kind of amended a couple of times, I think. If, if Taiwan's attacked, the United States will defend. Mm. Um, if the United States is attacked, Taiwan doesn't have to defend. Mm. Because obviously the Chinese Communist Party still holds the policy, the, the one China policy, mm. um, which I'm sure you know more about. Well, I think, I think Taiwan also holds that. I think they both say they're the boss of the other. So sort of yeah, a that's right. really. Yeah. But certainly that is its context within the Chinese civil war when um, Jiang Jiexi or, or Chiang Kai-shek, he's got both, both are his name, uh, fled mainland China with his nationalist army, the Kuomintang, and set up Taiwan. And it was terrible. It was a pretty bad place, to be honest. It was, it was under martial law for a couple of decades, I believe, until it eventually democratized. Mm. But mainland China, it didn't. It didn't democratize. Uh, and it's still there. And it's gotten... Um, I think the, the 2019 Human Rights Watch report said, you know, under President Xi, uh, it's only been deepening human rights abuses and repression. Um, and it's, it's quite a threat. So it is good to see Australia doing this. Where do you think Australia will be heading in the future and America uh, and the West um, in terms of relations with China after COVID? It, I think... I think it's obviously Australia's gone very quickly into a trade war with China um, this year. And I think um, the Morrison government, provided it doesn't do anything stupid, will get re-elected at the next election, even though it is far away. And I don't see Labor winning after the massive spike in numbers, um, poll numbers, not COVID numbers, that the Prime Minister's had. Um, yeah. And I think... I think he'll continue to pursue that hard line with China. And any of Donald Trump's elected again, then Absolutely. I'll definitely see China, you know, be on the, uh, on the back foot against them. But the interesting thing is if Joe Biden's elected, then where does that leave us? You know, are we, are we doing mm. our thing because America's doing it and because we know America has our backs or are we doing it? And even if America switches and Joe Biden is a bit softer on China. Are we going to be the bastion of that anti-Chinese, not necessarily anti-Chinese, but, you know, anti-communist CCP authoritarian movement? 
Yeah, yeah. And that uh, Australia alone is Australia alone. We'll lose. Mm. We will we will lose, absolutely. Mm. Um, <laughs> but and we don't want that. And I think I think Trump's really provoked all of this. <laughs> To come back to what we were talking about earlier uh, mm. this afternoon, Trump is really, you know, Trump hadn't had a trade war. This, none of this would be happening. Mm. Uh, I, I just don't, I don't see it happening. Uh, and of course, Biden, I think the FBI actually released a report the other day, which suggested that the Chinese Communist Party wants, uh, I was about to say President Biden and Biden mm. to win <laughs> yeah. the, the election. Mm. Whereas Russia wants Trump, which is interesting, says mm. something there. Um, but certainly, I mean, people are saying, uh, I saw something the other day that possibly Trump might actually recognize Taiwan as an independent mm. country while still maintaining the recognition of the PRC, mm. but recognize Taiwan as independent, which well, we've seriously, seen, we've seen what he's done with, um, with Israel and, and recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of that moving embassy. So I wouldn't put it past right. him to. To, to recognize Taiwan. Yeah, yeah. I think more could have been done for Hong mm. Kong, though, certainly. Mm, I mean, they were really left out there. That was a bit of a um, kind of a Austria or Czechoslovakia mm. moment to talk about the mm. context of the Second World War. Um, terrible. But I don't know. We'll see. I mean, you studied China, uh, if I'm correct. Mm. Uh, yeah, and, and obviously that. China's kind of biggest problem is internal domestic problems. Mm. Uh, is, 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 do you see that going anywhere? Do you see that inflaming um, any more than it is? Oh, it's, it's hard to say with um, COVID. It's, you don't know the numbers in China, whether they do actually have it um, resolved or not. So it's impossible to say whether or not that that's going to continue to be an issue for um, the Chinese government, like it has been, I don't, I don't see, I don't see the revolution coming yet. It may happen in the next, you know, four years. It might, but I just don't see it happening in the next twelve, twenty-four months. Yeah, for sure. Do you see? Uh ethnic minorities like uh, the Uyghurs or the Tibetans um, and such? Do you see anything anything going further then, uh, there? I think they'll continue to be persecuted and, and locked up in, uh, what are they called again? Not concentration camps, re-education centres. Yeah. Um, oh, great name. To, to pull the official line. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I don't think... I. It's it's hard to say because I just it's hard you know to get the reports and obviously we weren't around at the you know live at the fall of the communist regimes in um, the Soviet Union uh, so we don't know what it was like then but we're just not seeing that whole Cold War mentality that caused the fall of communism um, with China so I I think yeah. China will continue to get away with their abhorrent you know war crimes and not war crimes, but, you know, human right abuses um, for years until, you know, the West get together and say, all right, we've got to stand up. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it will be interesting to see what happens. Mm. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if, if in his second term, which you know, 
you know, I hope happens. Donald Trump does that. If he does mm. call out China for China's human rights abuses more. Um, mm. I think the thing, the different, the most, the biggest fundamental difference between this, um, which is essentially, if, we, if we're being honest, let's look at it strategically. Let's look at geopolitically. There's a cold war going on between the PRC and the United States at the moment. Um, and it's been completely provoked by the People's Republic of China. Um, in terms of their actions in the South China Sea, in the East China Sea, uh, in Myanmar, with their, mm. and their One Belt, One Road initiative. It's everywhere. It's, it's just influence. Um, but I don't think it's as ideologically driven as the Soviet, the Cold War with the Soviet mm. Union. Mm. The main reasons the Soviet Union collapsed, or at least this is a massive simplica- simplification from me who hasn't studied it, <laughs> um, is, well, the, the, U- the US and the USSR, there was no economic dependence on each other, mm. whereas China and the US at the moment, huge. Yeah, um, and the rest uh, of the world, everyone's relying on China. Yeah, and so that's that's the big difference. And, that'll, and of course, China's been slowly losing that mm. um, this year, but it will be interesting to see. It will, but I think that's... Uh... <laughs> Goodness knows how long this episode will be in uh, post when I've edited it because <laughs> we've talked for a while. But uh, yeah, that's probably covered everything quite quite extensively. Certainly has. Um, Unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Uh, we certainly enjoyed it, and uh, even if it was a bit longer than normal, uh, still a lot of fun. And of course, as always, if you want to check us out or keep updated on when we're releasing episodes or past episodes, uh, feel free to follow us on Instagram at the Barling and Mitchell show. Uh, send us any messages you have. Uh, we'll always be more than happy to help out. This has been the Barling and Mitchell show. I'm Sean Mitchell. And I'm Noel Barling. Barling.